Okay. So the summary of last week, basically, the purpose of this class is to introduce you to the Mass in B minor, one of the greatest works of choral music in existence, or to um, reintroduce you to it if you've heard it. We've, we've had it uh, actually sung here at the cathedral on our music series <coughs> two times during my uh, tenure here in 2003 and last year, 2011. It's to also, this class, give you some in insight into Bach himself as a composer uh, so that you possibly can appreciate this work more. But more than that, Bach was not the musician that composed, the only the musician that composed the Mass in B minor. He was the theologian who injected a lot of um, his Christian faith into the composition of this work. So that's the second point. And finally, uh, I'll tell you some little tidbits about how to listen to this uh, and what, how, how these theological things are rather somewhat abstractly, I suppose you might say, uh, in, in the, in the uh, listening experience. I've already mentioned that last week we uh, talked about Bach's life. You see it on the first page and the, and the map on page three. Uh, you can read the, the few facts. And uh, I talked a little bit about what a Mass is. Uh, we do it every Sunday. We have Holy Communion. That's a Mass. And the Mass in B minor is really uh, just one section of the uh, communion service. Obviously, the Reformers reformed it from the mass of the Catholic Church, which was developed over a, a thousand years, up until about the 12th century when it was totally codified. But the mass in B minor is just the ordinary. Now, that doesn't mean it's ordinary in, in the sense of uh, what it is. What it means is it has texts which do not change, depending on what season of the church you're in. For in Advent, the propers change. That's the other section of mass. But the ordinary is the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Agnus Dei, and the um, Sanctus Agnus Dei. I'm sorry, there are five of them. So if you look at page uh, two of your handout, let's see how Bach um, set this. The Missa, which is actually the Kyrie and the Gloria, he wrote early in life in 1733 and readopted it, revised it, in 1748-1749 to become the B minor Mass. It includes a three-movement Kyrie and a nine-movement Gloria. The, the second major area, the third major area of the ordinary, the, the, the creed is part two for Bach. The nice, it's the Nicene Creed, a translation of the Nicene Creed, and it has nine movements too. Now, while I'm talking about numbers, let me say that Bach was very interested in numerology, the science of numbers. And he uh, perhaps became interested in that because the sum total of his name, J.S. Bach, if you look at the German alphabet, is 14, where J appears S-B-A-C-H. And the sum total of Johann Sebastian Bach, I think, maybe I said that wrong, the sum total of B-A-C-H is 14, some total of Johann Sebastian Bach is 41, the exact inversion. Perhaps that's what interested him from the outset. I don't know. But how do you how do you do numbers in a work? Well, you, three is very important because for us theologically it symbolizes the Trinity. Seven, the seven deadly sins, the seven days of the week, all kinds of things. That's that's just a very simplified. Um, Thing about numerology. There's been books written about it, but Bach was very interested in it. 
1747, three years before his death, he waited after being invited to join a very prestigious society in Leipzig, the Mitzler Society, until he was the 14th person to join it. So, take it for what it's worth. But anyway, on the second page we have the Nicene Creed is part two, the third uh, part Sanctus, uh, and the fourth part is a combination of part, what we know is part of the Sanctus, the Hosanna and Benedictus, and the Agnus Dei. And the Dona Nobis Pacem is the very end of the Agnus Dei, you know. O Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, grant us thy peace. Dona Nobis Pacem. So Bach actually has four movements. If we listen to all of this, it would take two hours. So it's not a liturgical work, even though their church services were very long in Bach's time. They had, they had not a lot of other things to distract them, so they went to church and stayed there. Uh, but we know that it's probably not a liturgical work. He put it together at the end of his life uh, from previously existing material. Some of it is new. Actually, uh, parts of the credo and uh, parts of... Uh, I think parts of the credo are the, and the, the main things that are new that he wrote then. Um, I mentioned a while ago about Bach's faith, and that became very important in the writing of this work. And uh, we'll hear about some things related to that. But uh, more practically, we do know that he had uh, this Bible, which was annotated, which was uh, compiled by a man named Abraham Kaloff in the 17th century, and Bach has notes in it. The actual original edition that Bach held is, is held in St. Louis at Concordia Seminary. So uh, we know that he wrote annotations in his Bible about various theological things. Okay, so now we're going to skip. Last week we listened to the Kyrie and two movements of the Gloria. But we're going to skip uh, to movement 11 of the Gloria, but I want to tell you something about the Gloria, first of all. Let's, do you see where it is on your handout, page 2? Well, movement 4 and 5, the Gloria in Excelsis Dea and Et in Terra Pax, so the, uh, what we listened to last week, uh, really uh, the text comes from Luke. So you can separate those two movements off from 6 to 12, which is uh, a canticle from the Middle Ages, much like the Deum. So if you just look at 6 to 12, notice that the Quitolis Peccata Mundi is right in the middle of it. Again, the symmetry of this thing was important to Bach because the Quitolis Peccata Mundi translates, Thou that takest away the sins of the world have mercy upon us. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He puts this as the central movement. In the Crucifixus, I'll move on, there are nine movements. I'm just telling you a theological point here. Movement 17, the Crucifixus. It's right in the center. Again, very, very important. And around it is the, the core doctrine of Christianity. Et incarnatus est, the incarnation. Crucifixus, the crucifixus, and et resurrexi, the resurrection. Right in the center of the credo. So, back to what I initially said. We're skipping to movement 11. That's what we're going to listen to. And I need to uh, turn the CD on. And figure what I'm doing. I'm sorry. Okay, it's number 10.
Okay, so what we're going to hear here, the last, we're going to actually listen to the last two movements of the, the Gloria. Now remember I said a minute ago, the Kyrie and the Gloria are from a different time than when he compiled it in 748. They're in an earlier work that he brought together, the Missa. So movement 11 is going to be an ending movement to that Missa. So actually movement 11, yeah. Okay, so... The movement um, that we're going to listen to now is an aria for bass, and this is the first aria that I've played um, for you. And uh, the translation of that, if you look at movement 11, quoniam to solus sanctus to solus dominus. Uh, I'd like you all to read just what you have there. We'll do a little responsive reading. Read the text, and I'm going to read the rest of it. You read the text you have. Okay, go. Thou only art the Most High, Jesus Christ. That's what he's singing about in this aria. Now, how does Bach symbolize that musically? Well, first of all, you hear in this aria, like you do in the other arias, one of the solo instruments of the orchestra. Here you hear a corno di caccia, which is a, basically a valveless hunting horn. And it's very strong chord notes. Jum, bum, bum, bum. And the bass echoes it. The firmness of the melodic line uh, is important in kind of making us realize that Jesus is holy, is the Lord, and so forth. And uh, from this aria, he goes right into the last movement, which you see there, Cum Sancto Spiritu, which is a choral movement with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God. It's an exuberant movement uh, when the uh, timpani and the trumpets uh, enter to create uh, the final close. So, I'm not going to play the whole aria, but I'm going to give you a taste of it, and then I'll pause it and move it ahead a little bit. I'm going to have to adjust the volume uh, once I start it. And I first have to see where you do that, but I see it. Yeah. You hear the horn? There's two bassoons there, plus the, what we call the continua. And then the bass comes in. Thou only art holy. Thou only art the God. So that is an idea of that. We can't listen to it all, but I'm going to go to the last movement of the Gloria, the Cum Sancta Spiritu, which is 
exuberant and really a doxology in praise of, of Jesus and really ex- we get the idea of Bach's strong faith here. Okay, let me see again what I have to do here. I think I'm going to have to go ahead with it because it just... You know what? I wish I... Well, I don't know that I can... I have to move it ahead. Does it... Tune it. Okay, that's how you do that. Just figured it out. You just have to listen to it fast forward. Okay, we're going to hear, this goes right into the last movement, which is just incredibly exciting. So you have full chorus with full orchestra, timpani, the clarino trumpets right on top coming up. This version uses solos, solos. In fact, what you're hearing is only two people on a part in this incredible tempo. No, it's not. It's the other one. I'll tell you about it in a minute.
Okay. Sorry, I can't let you hear any more about it. More of it, but I hope we hear the end. But we can't. This recording, by the way, is uh, one by the ensemble Korund. It's it's the ensemble that sang here in 2003, and it's done in with a, with early instruments. It's also done with three people on a part, uh, as they did it here. The Robert Shaw recording is very very good. It uses early instruments. It's on the discography, uh, and it's very authentic. But it has a bigger chorus, about 40 in the chorus. So now we're going to move to the the, the Nicene Creed. Uh, and the creed was really, uh, a lot of the music was reworked, but there's some m new material in, in the creed. It has nine movements, as I mentioned before, but there's an interesting anecdote about it. If you look at the creed, I told you the crucifixus was right in the center. And just imagine that the et incarnatus, which is, uh, as you know, the uh, incarnation of, of, of Jesus in the Blessed Virgin uh, Mary, there's those three. The one right before that movement, 15, is a solo. The one right after that is a solo. A bass aria first, actually a duet in 15. And if you take the first movement, 13 and 14, they're a pair, and 20, 21 are a pair. Now, before Bach made the final revision, he had the et incarnatus est as part of the previous movement. So we only had eight movements. And he changed it so that we would have nine movements you know, one wonders why he did this, so that the et incarnatus was given its own importance. You can imagine whatever you want about that. But instead of being two, one, three, one, two, the outline of the movements, the pair at the first, the solo, the three together, the solo, and two, we end up with, uh, did I say that wrong? Yes. I did say it wrong. We had two, one, two, one, two, and now we have two, one, three, one, two. That's what I meant to say. Uh, so, uh, the first movement, uh, I don't really have time to listen to it. It wasn't on your listening example, I'd hope to, but we're going to listen to the Confitior, which is, uh, in a minute, which is number 20. It's just like it. It's in a style, uh, which we call the motet style, a Renaissance style, where the voices are doubled by the instruments. They do not have their own uh, independent line. However, that, this, this mass is for five voices. Two soprano parts, alto, tenor, and bass. When I say five voices, all the singers will know what I'm talking about. Uh, we actually have more people singing, but we have five parts. Five, that's not a really important number in numerology. Bach added two independent violin lines to it to make seven. <laughs> Again, why did he do it? I, I, I don't know. What we're going to move to is the, uh, the listening... Uh, the listening thing number six, if you're looking at your listening examples, the et in unum dominum. Look at page one a minute, and let's just uh, read this. As you know, this is just the creed that we say every Sunday. We didn't say it at nine, but we'll say it at 11 because it's the Nicene Creed. Let's just read the English translation. And in one Lord Jesus, down at six, number six. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten as Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Now you can translate that also, God from God, light from light. And Bach actually was thinking about that. I'm going to play just a little bit of this soprano and alto duet, which exhibits unusual theological points in its musical construction. As the two voices, the soprano and the uh, tenor, I think it is, is that what it is? Uh, I should, anyway, as they weave back and forth, what do I say it is right here? So that's soprano and alto. As the two voices weave back and forth, 
each echoing the other, one leading from the other. This is Bach's way of saying God from God, light from light, very God from very God. It's a strong endorsement of the Trinity. Let's listen to it a minute first, and then I'll read you a quote from Albert Schweitzer, who wrote a biography of Bach uh, about this uh, thing. So I have to change CDs to two. I think I finally figured out how to do this. Okay, so we'll listen to a little bit of this aria so you can hear how these parts weave back and forth. And let me just see what the other instrumentation is in this. So, uh, this is number six. Et in unum dominum. Number six in the creed. Uh, You know, on page one I'm giving you the... uh, translations of the listening examples, okay? And we're at number six. On page two in the outline, this is actually movement number uh, 15. Does that help you? So we're talking about listening example number six, and we're talking about movement 15. And I probably should just, oh, here I am. Finally, here I am. Okay, so what we have here, oh, Interesting, you'll hear them, and they're actually two oboe d'amore, which is a more mellow sounding oboe from the Baroque period. uh, Love oboes, if you want to really translate it. (laughs) Oboes one and two with violins and soprano and alto duet. So I think every time I stop this, I have to push the volume up. Okay, so listen how they, when they get in back and forth, they echo one another. a fuller sounding oboe than we're used to, okay? It has a body to it. They're back and forth, just right there. Then the alto sings the same thing. Just a little bit. That's all I can do. But let me read you this quote from uh, Schweitzer. And as you, really, the Bob B. Minor Mass can be enjoyed, of course, on one listening, but to really get into it, you have, you know, you have to really uh, listen to it more than once. And this is from the biography of Bach by Albert Schweitzer. The theologian Bach also had a hand in the composition of the Credo. He knew what the Greek fathers had in their minds when he took such pains to prove the identity of Christ with God and yet assert a diversity and independence of persons. He makes both singers sing the same notes but in such a way that it does not amount to the same thing. The voices follow each other in strict canonic imitation. Okay, a canon is like a round. It's just one sings, the other follows. The one proceeds out of the other, just as Christ proceeds out of God. Okay, so we're going to move now to the three central movements of the credo. The 
et incarnatus est and the crucifixus and et resurrecto. <coughs> et resurrecto. Okay? And those are movements uh, 16, 17, and 18, right? And there are listening examples 7, 8, and 9, and on this recording there's no break in between. <coughs> so uh, it's a different uh, a feeling, and really it's a different feeling than what we just heard. It's not as happy, of course. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to just let you hear some of the Ed Incarnatus, and then I'm going to talk about it. <coughs> let me just make sure that I have the right place. What do you notice about this immediately? It's doleful. I'm showing you what Bach's doing. I have something to pass around too, which I'm going to... I'm going to pause it and just tell you what you're hearing there is the chorus. uh, And each person starts high and comes low from up there to down here. And uh, it gives really a mysterious feeling about the incarnation. And there's a lot of mystery about that, is there not? The pulsating bass line signifying the beginning of something, perhaps life. And the violin lines. Now, I think you heard enough of that tonight. Yeah, bottom, bottom. So what I'm going to hand around here, Bach a lot of times in the actual, you can't even notice this unless you look at a piece of music. But in his notation, he did these kind of things. He put the notes in such a way that they formed, if you connect certain notes, a cross. And I've connected the notes uh, of the third measure to show you what it looks like. Just pass them down. I've got three. That's the opening page of the Ed Incarnatus. The cross motif occurs everywhere. I mean, in organ music, in cantatas, but here it is in the Ed Incarnatus Est. So the violin lines, who have the cross motive, um, which I'm passing around, the descending line signifying uh, Jesus coming to earth and assuming human form and whatever. And then, well, I guess that sounds a little... Let's just go on. Listen to some more of it. Oh. Apparently, I'm still not knowing how to do this machine. Thought you could... Okay. So we're starting again. I think I've figured it out now. This is the what you see there. Now, this is not a long movement. So, I'm going to move right on into the crucifixes, which it goes, and you might read the translation of that. I don't think it's, you remember it from saying the creed. It's number eight. 
on your listening example, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The cathedral choir just sang uh, this without orchestra. We did it with organ accompaniment, not this year, but about two years ago. We've sung it several times. The crucifixus, I think what I'm going to have to do is tune it ahead. Again, I have created a problem, (laughs) but we will be finished with the problem in just a minute. Here's the crucifixus. Very similar. I'll just tell you about it in a minute. Just listen to it. Do you hear those violin lines? Chum, 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 chum. The sorrow that's noted in the vocal lines. The flutes, there's two flutes with the basso continuo. Anyway, these striking notes, one could say, and scholars have said, they represent the nails being driven into the cross. Now, if you want to hear something else about this, he used five notes. And I couldn't find the source of this. Maybe Charles knows. Apparently, there were five wounds. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. There we go. He's five notes. Cruci fi ixus. One, two, three, four, five. I couldn't find that anywhere. I looked it up, but I, obvious. Simplistic, isn't it? Now, so we have more dissonance, which means... Uh, Things not really fitting together right in the, in the harmony. Coming in at the end of this as he's beginning to die. And the actual, the, actually the orchestra leaves and the choir ends on the last chord by itself. Jesus is left alone. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, it's all symbolism and I think it's there. Even though I'm not sure... No, they don't get up and leave like Haydn's symphony. What is it, number 45? But I'm going to run it ahead a little bit. I think I know what I'm doing now. Oh, shoot. I keep touching the darn top of the thing, and it just... Okay, so I've got to do this again. Sorry, y'all. And run it ahead. And I'll try it. Please just say, don't touch the top. Okay? <laughs> don't touch the top. Okay, so you'll have to indulge me just a second. Mm-hmm. 
while we go fast forward through the crucifixes to the end. about to end, you'll hear the instruments off, and then suddenly into the, the resurrection. And it's also going down very low <laughs> in the range of the singers. Now the last chord is just the singers. And be ready, because it takes off with some ascending motives symbolizing the resurrection. I'm going to let this play till the end. I know I'm putting my hand up there. This is a live performance, and the tenor ran out of breath. I'm not sure I have the right spot, but I ran it ahead so we can hear the end. And that 
just has a musical. It's, it's about to end. I'm not going to... Uh, I, I may get to do just a little bit of this, but we're going to move to the last two movements, number uh, 10 and 11 of the Creed. And obviously, I'm not going to get through the whole uh, Mass, and I didn't plan to. I'm not doing the Sanctus or the ending, but uh, <coughs> the Ozana Benedictus. But I wanted to... Uh, play just the ending of movement 10, the Confiteor Uno Baptisma, which is, if you might remember, I said at the beginning of the class, mirrors the first movement of the creed. It's a motet-style fugue with the instruments doubling. And the translation of that is, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and then movement 11, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. This is uh, continuous, and I'm going to just start it so you can hear what... I know, Charles, I should do an iPod, but first I have to learn how to deal with technology <laughs> and have the time to deal with it. That's the main thing. This is movement, um, the Confiteor movement, I think. Yeah. Notice it sounds, it's a fugue, but it sounds kind of old style to the musicians perhaps in the, in the audience. And what he does, he starts, Confitor, acknowledge the one baptism, he does that in uh, kind of a canon, fugue canon, and then he starts again for the remission of sins, meaning kind of that yeah, in order to be forgiven, you've got to believe. That's what he's thinking there. All right, we're going to go to the end of this. And right before the, et, um, what's the, trend? the et expecto, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, as this movement ends, it just sounds like chaos. And what that represents, I mean, it's very dissonant. It's very involved musically. And suddenly out of this chaos comes joy. And basically Bach is, I think, from what the scholars say, uh, trying to say, because of the human condition, we can't totally believe all this. We're, we're kind of just in kind of a, a fog. And suddenly it erupts. And isn't it interesting that that's what he did? It? Now let me make sure that I can know how to do this. I'm going to start it and move it ahead. Hopefully I'll get to the right spot. Et expecto. And that's the way we'll end the class. Here it is. Et expecto. Okay? That translates, and I look for the resurrection of the dead. But there's a lot of uncertainty in this musical representation. It's kind of like the crucifixus movement in sound. They're singing at expecto. It's a little hard to hear it.
we'll just listen to the opening. I, we've got time. My choir is leaving me. Here we go. Ed Expecto. So, you get the point, I hope. And, you know, in for a work that's two hours long, 128 minutes, it's hard to, to even introduce you to it in two 40-minute classes. But I hope that I have done something to pique your interest so that you go listen to it, go hear a live performance of it. It doesn't get done often. In fact, the Georgia Tech Chorale that did it here last year said it hadn't been done in Atlanta since 1990 when Robert Shaw did it, which is very unusual. They did it in 2000, that's 11 years. So it takes a big force. It's, it's a very complex work. But I, you can listen to it on the CDs, and I hope you've gotten some out of this class. Thank you for being here. Thank you.